organized up here. If you would, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. where we're going to be today. Okay. Like I said, good to see everybody. Glad everybody could be here. Um, Just in case you're wondering, Dick and Lynn are in Colorado. Chad and Lori are camping. Brigetta and Martin are still in Germany. So... You know, hopefully in a couple of weeks we'll have everybody here and, and going and and we'll go from there. So let's go ahead. Let's pray and then we'll and then we'll start. Father, just thankful that we can come into your presence, Lord, and sing to you these praises, Lord, that we are truly redeemed by the blood of Christ, Father, and that we bow down at your cross, Lord. That cross that saved our lives, Lord, that the Christian never dies. Father, we have a hope that is more spectacular than anything we can feast our eyes on. We have a Savior that we completely stand in awe of because of the work that he has done for us. And so, Lord, I pray you would encourage our hearts today with your word, and I pray your Holy Spirit would come and just settle upon us, Lord, and give us much grace as we go through your word, Father, that Christ would be glorified, that he would be lifted high, that you would be worshiped, and that we would walk away, Father, adoring you and loving you much more. We just ask this in your name. Amen. So often times, we as human beings, we like to be amazed or we like to be in awe because it does something to our soul, right? When we see something that's awe-inspiring, it, it takes our soul to a whole different delight and stuff. And so we see that there's many different things that can bring us this awe in life. It might be looking at creation, you know, for example, the Grand Canyon or Zion National Park where those few places we've been or Mount Rushmore we can we can stand in awe of these uh, beautiful beautiful pictures and uh, or these beautiful uh, creations the badlands and just be in awe of those things or maybe it's a painting you know maybe some of you went to the beyond Van Gogh and saw some of Van Gogh's paintings and just were in awe of this man's mastery of being an impressionist Maybe it's not that. Maybe you're amazed at a sports feat. Maybe a football catch or a baseball catch or some great thing done with football. Maybe it's a sunrise or a sunset that brings that sense of awe to you. But whatever it is, it's different for all of us. All of us have different things that bring us that awe and bring us that amazement to us. But my question to you all today is, is Christ truly amazing to you? Is he someone that strikes awe into your soul? Or as being a Christian for a long time, has Christ become second place? He's just old hat. He's 
not even every part of your everyday life. And maybe he's not any part of any part of your life except on Sundays. And that's it. So have we lost our awe-ness of who Christ is? Are we truly not amazed at what he has done for us? So with that, I want to read in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 through 24, as we look at what we should stand in awe of with Christ. Here's what the Apostle Peter writes. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So this is what we should stand in awe of. The person, the work, and that work applied to us is what we should be in awe of. So first of all, let's look at what, what, what we should see in the person of Jesus, right? What do we stand in awe of with the person of Jesus? We stand in awe of his sinlessness. And we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school, right? Where Christ was sinless. And that, I think, is hard for us to, to really uh, grasp onto because we're sinful, but Christ was sinless. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus was perfect. He was unblemished. He was the spotless lamb of God. This is who he is. This word committed here, it means to continue or execute or exercise or fulfill. So what this is saying that Jesus continually he continually executed. He continually exercised or fulfilled a life that was sinless. It just wasn't momentary. It was every day, 24-7 of his life was sinless. This is what makes him amazing. This is what should send us in awe. Listen to what Hebrews 4.15 tells us. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Just think of your daily walk and what you do daily and how you are tempted daily, how the temptations come to you daily. And yet Jesus tempted in every single way that you and I are, but he never sinned without sin. Again, the, Hebrew, the writer of the Hebrews says in 726, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. First John 3, 5, the apostle John says this, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So we see that Jesus was sinless. That means what? That there was no deceit found in his mouth. He never said a wrong thing. Everything he said was right. This word deceit, it can mean 
uh, a craftiness or uh, there was no guile or cunningness in his speech. There was no trickery. He wasn't trying to deceive anybody. He wasn't trying to lure anybody with smooth speech. But his speech was perfect in every way. Perfectly rebuking, but yet perfectly encouraging. His speech was empathetic when it needed to be empathetic. And his speech was strong when it needed to be strong. But it was absolutely perfect because he is sinless. Isaiah prophesied about this in Isaiah 53, 9. He says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This was who Jesus was. So we stand in awe of his sinlessness. Secondly, we stand in awe of his actions. Of his actions. Look at his actions in in 1 Peter 2.23. It says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So first of all, this word reviled means to bring reproach or to slander or to attack. Suffer means to suffer, to suffer hardships. This is what these words mean. Now, what we have to understand is that these are continual actions, continual actions. So what Peter is telling us is here is that when Jesus was continually being reviled against, when he was continually being slandered, when he was continually being attacked, he continually did not revile in return. So he didn't return slander for slander. He didn't return reproach for reproach. He didn't return attack for attack. He didn't do that. He continually reviled not. And when suffering came onto him, this continually suffering, the continual hardships, when those were continually coming to him, he continually did not threaten. But what did he do? He continually entrusted himself to the one who judges. This is what he did. Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews 12.3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If we look at the hardships that Jesus went through, if we look at the suffering and the reproach that he had to deal with, we should not be um, shocked when it comes upon us because it's going to come upon us too. So we shouldn't be shocked. But what was some of the hardships that Jesus went through, right? The Hebrews tells us that. The hostility. What's the hostility that Jesus endured? I'm sure all of us can go in our minds and say, oh, wow, yeah, he was reviled against. He was, he was uh, you know, called a liar. All these things. And let, let's look at just a few. The Bible tells us that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, right? Uh, Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Not only was he oppressed and afflicted, but he was mocked. He was mocked as he hung on the cross. Listen to the mockery 
Listen to the mockery that Matthew records in Matthew 27. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. And he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So as he hung on the cross, the people that walked by mocked him, wagging their heads. The religious people walked by and said, Huh, you say who you said you were, but you got no proof. You say you're God's son. And then even the robbers on both sides were casting insults at him. Brothers and sisters, do not be shocked when we are mocked for what we believe. But not only was Jesus mocked, but he was beaten. He was blasphemed. Luke 22, 64 and 65. They also blindfolded him and kept, ma- and kept asking him, prophesied, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. He was falsely accused in John eight forty eight. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? They accused Jesus of being a demon, having a demon in him. He was falsely accused. You see some sermons that are preached out there where we have to see where Jesus is either, he was either a lunatic, he was either a liar, or he's Lord. And there's people that believe the first two, that he's just this crazy fellow, he's a complete liar. But if everything is true about what Jesus says about himself, he is nothing but Lord. And these people will see that. But he was falsely accused. But what was his response? What was his response when this hardship and these trials and these tribulations came onto him? Peter tells us this, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges. Jesus trusted the Father. He trusted the plan. He trusted what God had for his life. That's what Jesus had. 1 Peter 4.19 says this, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We are to do likewise. When we are in these hardships and these times of hard times, we are to what? Continually trust God because he's the one who rightly judges. Psalms puts it this way for us. Into your hands I commit my spirit. We hear that from Jesus on the cross, right? Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Psalm 37, 5. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. So when Jesus was reviled, he reviled not back. When he suffered, he did not threaten back. So we see his actions are even sinless and they're pure. We see that his actions were. So we stand in awe of his actions. We stand in awe of his sinlessness. And we stand in awe of his atonement. Of his atonement. This is why we come here today. We come here for this. 
for communion because we want to celebrate the atonement. That's what we want to do. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now this is packed full. This is packed full of stuff here, right? So he sits there. Let's look at the first part. He himself bore our sin. This is what Christ did. Nobody else did this. He alone has done this. Just imagine in this little room of, what is there of us? Ten of us here today? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, eleven of us. The eleven of us here today. Just imagine the amount of sin in our lives that we have in our lives. And put that on Jesus. That's a heavy load. But then imagine the sin of the elect. The, the, the sin of the chosen. The sin of his bride. Imagine that and the weight that is on him. And the wrath that he's going to take for that. That all of God's wrath is going to be poured out on him. And it says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. This word bore means to bear or carry or offer up. Jesus carried our sins to the cross. He lifted our sins up on the cross. He bore our sins on the cross. Why? So that we would not have to so that we would not have to. Listen to Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah is clear in, in his writing that Jesus was the one that took all of our transgressions, all of our iniquities, and he was pierced for them. He died for them. He paid the ultimate price that we needed to pay, that we should have paid. He dies our death and gives us his life. This, brothers and sisters, we stand in awe of. That he bore our hell so that we would have his heaven. This is what we stand in awe of. Listen to John 1.29. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who does what? He takes away the sin of the world. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle Paul writes this, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. Jesus gets our sin, we get his righteousness. We used to sing a song called, His Robes for Mine. He takes our robes of unrighteousness, and he gives us his robes of righteousness. This is what Jesus does. This should not be second place in our lives, brothers and sisters. This should not be second hand. This should not be old hat. This should be something that when we read a passage like this, that we stand in awe of, that we sit there and we're amazed at what Jesus has done. 
but we can get used to it. Yep, Jesus died for my sin. But we shouldn't be that way. We should be exuberant. We should be brought low. We should be having tears in our eyes. We should be eternally grateful for what he's done. This is what he's done. He's bore our sins in his body. Hebrews 9.28 So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So we see his first time he dealt with our sin. Now he bore our sins himself on, in his body. So why? Why do you do this? Look at the passage again. Look at 23 again. 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That we might die to sin. Die to what part of sin? Die to the power of sin. Die to the penalty of sin, but not to the presence of sin. That's when we get to heaven. But brothers and sisters, because we have died with Christ and we've risen with Christ, we are dead to sin. It has no power over us anymore to have its way. It has no dominion over us. Romans 6, 2 puts it this way. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? We can't be living in it. It can't be the habit of our lives. Are we going to sin? Yes, we're going to sin. And John tells us in chapter 2 of 1 John, he says that when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are going to sin. We are going to do that. But should we live in it? No. We should not be living in it. It should not... um, It should not define who we are anymore as it used to. We don't live in the sin anymore because we've died to that sin. Romans 6, 7 puts it this way. For one who has died has been set free from sin. There's the power. You're set free. You have a choice. You see, the one who's not a believer doesn't have a choice. All they know how to do is sin. But then all of a sudden when Christ comes into our life and he opens our eyes and the Holy Spirit indwells us, now all of a sudden we see sin for what it is. And we see the rottenness of it and the detestableness of it and the putrid smell of it. And we realize one thing, I've been set free from that. Why would I ever want to go back to it? We've been set free from it. Again, in 6.11, he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and what? Alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is our standing, brothers and sisters. We are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Very much alive. So not only that, not only are we that, that we might die to sin, But we see that by Jesus' wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. Look again at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. We have been healed. But what have we been healed from? Have we been healed from a cold? No. Have we been healed from COVID? No. Right? Have we been healed from disease? No. Are we immune from trials and tribulations? No. It's not those things. 
but our souls have been healed from sin. That's what it is. By his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, you and I are saved, brothers and sisters. That's what it is. The cross has saved us from sin. It has saved us from us, right? I read this book one time. It's called, the, it's called uh, oh, I forget what it's called, but I know the first part of it. It says this, we have found the enemy, and the enemy is within. We've been healed from that. We've been healed with, from that because now the Holy Spirit lives within us. And he's not the enemy. Jesus, he took all of our iniquities. He took all of our transgressions. He took all of our sin in his body. And when he died, we died. And when he rose, he rose. We have been healed by his wounds or by his stripes we have been healed. Oh, we stand in awe of his atonement. So now, how do we apply this to us, right? How do we apply this to us? Because we have to look at verse 21, right? We didn't look at verse 21 yet. And this is what verse 21 tells us. It says, For to you this has been, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you example, so that you might follow his steps. So as we look at this text, we see and we stand in awe of the sinlessness of Christ. We stand in awe of his pure actions that he has. And we stand in awe of this atonement that gives you and I life and that we have been healed, right? We stand in awe of that, but it also serves as an example for you and I. So what's this example? Well, the example is that we are to live lives righteously. We are to pursue holiness. We see the absolute perfection of Christ, his absolute holiness, his absolute glory, and that he was sinless. But we are not sinless. But this doesn't mean that we don't, that we don't uh, pursue it. We pursue holiness. We pursue righteousness. We guard our mouths. We guard our tongues. Ephesians 4 tells us that we should have no unwholesome word come out of our mouth, but only that which is edifying and good for building each other up, not tearing each other down. We should have the same speech. There should be no guile in our speech. There should be no craftiness in our speech. This is what we should be pursuing. We should be pursuing a life of holiness. We should be having the same actions as Jesus did. When somebody slanders us or somebody reviles us or somebody destroys our reputation and they continue to do that, we should continually forgive. We should continue to show them the grace that, that God has shown us. We should continue to show them mercy as God has shown us. Why? Because this is what Jesus did. Jesus was the example. He's the ultimate example. That's why Peter writes that, leaving us example that we would follow in his steps. Not only that, but we are to be children who continually are trusting ourselves to God, trusting ourselves in every way and in every situation. Right, Proverbs tells us that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Right? But trust in God. This is what we are to do. We're to be continually trusting in God. 
We're to be doing the exact same things, pursuing holiness, treating others as we wish to be treated. We are to be trusting ourselves to God. But what's the motivation? Why should we be doing that? Why should we be doing that? Should we be doing that because we just want to be better than the other person? Because we want to walk a holier life? Because we want to walk this, this legalistic life? No, we, we, we are that way because of the atonement. We pursue holiness, we pursue rightful actions, we pursue clean speech, we pursue trusting God. Why? Because Christ bore our sins in his body. Because we have died with him and we have been risen with him and we are alive to God. That is why we pursue these things. Not to inherit those things. Those things are all ours already. But because those are all ours, that's why we pursue a life of holiness. That's where it brings us. That's the example Christ left us. Because of what he has done, you live this life now. And that's what brings us to communion today. This is why we come to celebrate communion. We come once a month, brothers and sisters, once a month, that's it, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We come so that we can see that the body, the body was given for us, the body that, that hung on the cross for us. And we, we, we celebrate that as we, as we take the bread. We, the bread symbolizes that body. And the blood, the blood of the new covenant that Jesus instituted himself, that in this new covenant, God says in this new covenant, and I remember their sins no more. Knowing that Christ's work on the cross was completely finished. Nothing left for us to do. Wow! This is what we stand in awe of. Christ has done it all for us. Nothing left for us to do. We are redeemed. We are reconciled. We are justified. And if you notice, those are all in the past tense. He's not redeeming. No, he redeemed. He's not reconciling. No, he reconciled. He's not justifying. No, he justified. And one day, brothers and sisters, because of what we come to celebrate today, we will be glorified with him in heaven. This is what we stand in awe of. So, As we go to take this today, brothers and sisters, we want to do it with a pure heart. We want to do it with a pure heart. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us this. It says this, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So be sure your heart is right, brothers and sisters, as we take communion. Be sure your Uh, that you've repented before God. Be sure your heart is in a good spot with the Lord. And if it's not, don't take this. Pass it up. It's okay. And if you sit here and a a non-believer, don't take it either because it's not for you. So, but let's let's, uh, take a second to pray. Ask God to forgive you of any sin in your life before we take this. And I'll go ahead and pass out the elements and then we'll take this together.